You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the LightningInsider.com podcast. I am Eric Rowlandson from LightningInsider.com, also the author of Lightning Strikes, the story of the 2020 Tampa Bay Lightning run to a Stanley Cup championship. You can find on Triumph Books and Amazon, or if you want a signed copy, you can reach out to me. Just send me an email, eric at lightninginsider.com, or send me a direct message on Twitter. I'll give you details on how you can get a copy of that book personalized to you, along with Greg Linelli from Lightning Power Play and Lightning Radio, uh, host Power Lunch with Dave Mishkin, meet weekdays, Monday through Friday at noon. Also the pregame, postgame, and intermission host as well. And we got a lot to, to cover this week. We want to talk about everybody's favorite topic, officiating. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the situation in the Central Division that might have taken a turn with a very specific injury to a key player on another team. And who knows what else is going to come up. And with that, let's bring in Greg right now. Uh, Greg, uh, good to be with you again. Always fun to have you on. And I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm still reeling over the loss of the uh, U.S. soccer program Olympic qualifying to Honduras. It's a tough one to take, man. Oh, you know, I saw you just really be upset about that. And you were going back and forth with a lot of people on Twitter of course, I saw the back and forth, and then I quickly moved on because <laughs> you know how I feel about soccer. If they were playing in my backyard, I would, just to make sure everything was okay, that the alligators weren't eating them, and then I'd, I'd go back inside <laughs> to do what I was doing. But I understand it's a big deal. I get it. And I, I don't know what else to add outside of, I mean, U.S. soccer just, they disappoint more than they, they don't. And when will they turn that corner e because it feels like they do have a couple of young guys who a lot of people can get behind look this is the greatest talent pool that the u.s soccer program has ever had if you look at the number of players that they have playing in europe uh fifa rules and doesn't dictate that those players must be released by their clubs to take part in qualifying and qualifying of course is an under 23 tournament so it's not the world cup uh, so, you know, the Kristen Pulisics and the Weston McKinney's and the Tyler Adams and Sergino Denst and all those players were not allowed to participate with the uh, qualifying situation. They could have played 
in the Olympics later this summer, had the team qualify. But boy, if anybody saw the second goal that Honduras scored two minutes into the second half off of a keeper error, like a keeper error of gratuitous situations, it's tough to take when you end up losing the game two to one. It's, it's very difficult to uh, accept a loss like that when, uh, first of all, they were very tentative in the first half, very indecisive in the first half. Didn't decide to play until it was 2 nothing, and it's a lot harder in soccer to make up a two-goal deficit than it is in hockey to make up a two-goal deficit, and we saw that yesterday, unfortunately. You know, if the U.S. team was playing hockey, you can make a case they also have goalkeeper issues, just like some playoff teams that we'll get to later on <laughs> in the program. You like that tie-in? Was that a stretch? I did. That's a great segue. That is a great segue. It is. You're it darn is. right it is. Uh, <laughs> All right, so let, let, uh, let's transition from the soccer talk to the hockey talk. This is a hockey podcast after all. And, like, let's touch on the controversy, the, the situation, because it's, it's really popped up in the last week, and it all ties back. If anybody heard the situation involving veteran referee Tim Peel, who was caught on a microphone that was still hot coming out of a broadcast, uh, with the Nashville Predators, where basically he said that he wanted to call a penalty on Nashville, that he un- he knew it wasn't much of a penalty, but he felt like he had to call one on Nashville to sort of make it up. And it's it's brought a couple of things to uh, the forefront of the conversation. It's not any type of a secret that the thought process has always been that officials manage games in a lot of ways and that they look for makeup calls and evening things out and officiating to the score. It's not a surprise to hear these type of comments. Uh, the only thing is that he got caught uh, saying those actual words. And then to find out, he actually said it to a Nashville player at the time. is is even pretty uh, odd to hear a veteran guy do like that. And then, so the league doesn't allow Tim Peel, who was going to retire in a few weeks anyway, that he's not going to call any more games. They never said he was fired. They never said that he was let go. They just said he wasn't going to call any more games. And, you know, he'll get to keep his pension and everything like that, which he should. That's This one incident shouldn't take away from the career that Tim Peel had. It's, it's going to taint it a little bit, but it shouldn't take away from it. But what we've seen here in the, in the days since that happened is that referees are under more scrutiny, and it seems like they're not able to handle being under more of a microscope than normal. We don't have to look any further than the two games that Tampa Bay played since the Tim Peel incident in Dallas, where they received zero power play opportunities. And then the game in Carolina, where there were at least three high sticking calls made or, or committed that were not called, including one that took away a scoring chance from Pat Maroon and seven seconds later turned into a power play for Carolina ended up being the game winning goal. Greg, does the league have an officiating issue? I mean, I think they've had one for a long time. I mean, they really have. And if you don't believe me, just watch the playoffs every year. (laughs) I mean, they, they swallow the whistle more times than not. And you affect the game by not calling penalties more so than you do. And it, it's frustrating I don't want to knock the officials too, too much because I've never been one. And so I have no idea what it's like. I will say this. Phil Esposito has made this point a number of times, and I'm kind of agreeing with him. I think the game's too fast for these guys. I really do. And factor in 
rule changes every year. I, I think this is where the NFL runs into some problems. I think having instant replay makes them more hesitant to call certain things. I also think guys don't know what's a legitimate hit anymore. I don't. And I'm not sure that's their fault. I don't think the league does. You factor that all in, and I think you get a lot of inconsistencies with the NHL. I don't think it's unusual to see officials in every sport swallow the whistle late in games when it's important. I think the NBA does that to some extent. I think the NFL may do that. It's a little harder to do when you're calling balls and strikes. It's it's pretty obvious when you're talking about MLB. Do they have an officiating problem? Yeah, but I, I, I don't I, I think this has been going on for a while, E, and I, I don't know what to do about it outside of is the game too fast? If it is too fast, what do you do? I don't want another referee on the ice. I actually think you need to take more guys off the ice who are officials than adding more guys to it. And as far as Tim Peel's concerned, I mean, look, he was he was penalized because this was his last year. I and mean, for caught. anybody, I mean, for for me at least, I, when I look at it, maybe he would have been suspended a couple of games. But if he still had tenure, if he was still not planning on retiring, I think he would have been he would have been back and. I think it made it easier for the league to do something knowing that this was his last year. So I wouldn't wear a microphone anymore if I'm an official. I might not wear a microphone if I'm a player. And I think officiating is really hard. I do think it's too fast. I'm not sure how you fix it outside of a penalty late in the game in the third period of a playoff game needs to be called a little bit more frequently than what we've seen because the swallowing the whistle and letting them play talk, that gets old because it does affect not, the game. I'm not a fan of that. I never have been. I know you haven't. I've, I know you have. I've, yeah, we've talked about this. I've, I've had this conversation with plenty through the years that by saying I don't want to be the one to – determine the outcome of the game means you're still determining the outcome of the game because teams are going to get away with stuff that they shouldn't be able to get away with. If like, if a team has the puck as much, you know, if they're dominating puck possession and they're, they're drawing penalties that aren't called, you're penalizing the, the better team. You're not giving them the opportunities that they've deserved. So by putting the whistle away, you are determining the outcome of a game and the a penalty in December should be a penalty in May. There shouldn't be any difference. The game shouldn't be called any differently. Um, I don't know when and if we're going to get away from that mentality. Uh, it's still sort of the culture of hockey, right or wrong, agree with it or not. It, it's, it's there. Um, you know, you mentioned Major League Baseball. Well, first of all, you, you can't put another referee on the ice. It's, you, you can't do it. It's, I don't know if you need to take a guy off the ice because I think you do need two, one at each end, um, you know, the referees. But I think they have to be in sync a little bit more because you – how often do you see the guy 150 feet away from the play make the call when the guy 10 feet away doesn't make a call? Uh, so I think they just need to be a little more in sync in that aspect. Um, but Major League Baseball is experimenting with these robotic umpires, and it's a different sport. I get it. You can't have robotic referees, but it has been brought up an eye in the sky 
so to speak. So a third referee that can make calls from above, I don't, now you're starting to get three guys involved and maybe that convolutes things way too much than you even want to consider. Uh, but it has been brought up uh, by some people that is, is that a route that maybe you could take to have somebody that can call things from above as opposed to on the ice? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm always hesitant to get more officials involved because I think now we, we get a cluster, if you know what I'm talking about. E. I yep. think that's not very good. I mean, I'm old school. Just call call balls and strikes. And here's the thing. If you're not going to do that, if you're not going to do that, then you probably need to give coaches and organizations more of an opportunity to challenge everything. Everything. Honestly, and if you lose a challenge, then you get penalized, whatever that is. But the officiating is a problem. We all acknowledge it. I'm not saying it's all of their fault. As I said before, I'm coming to the opinion that it's too fast for them. And I also think they are processing new rules every year, and it's hard to implement those all the time with how fast the game is going. But if you're not going to get it right, I think you need to expand what a team can challenge and what they can't because then at least it gives you an opportunity if there is a high stick on Pat Maroon to call that out when the officials miss it. That's all I'm saying. I don't want more people on the ice. I'm not sure I want more people in Toronto involved looking at plays. Let's use what we have. Expand the challenges if you want to. Let the officials know that I think you missed a call. Let's look at it. And you know what? If the official ends up being wrong, there needs to be consequences for that. I don't know what they are. I mean, I know they evaluate these these officials every game and probably like most officials, e the ones that are really good play during the most meaningful time. But I'd also like to hear from the referees a little bit more. Expose them to the media. I want to know why you missed that call. Why did you swallow that whistle? You should be held accountable just like the players and coaches. I think it's fair. So I understand the officials have a tough job. I don't want more of them on the ice. I think I want more challenges. And just like if a team gets the challenge wrong, maybe you make the penalty a little stiffer for them. But if the official gets it wrong... I think there needs to be some consequences and some accountability. And that's the only way I see that resolving it that's in a that's a practical way. But then again, sometimes logic and practicality misses the NHL at times. <laughs> I've said it before, the league thrives despite those who run it sometimes. Yeah, right. Um so a lot to unpack there from my standpoint. First of all, uh the challenges, well, I don't know if you can bring more challenges into play. Um, like, how can you stop play if you think Pat Maroon was given a high stick? Like, do you, you throw a red flag on the ice? You know, it's, it's the game is, you mentioned the game is fast, and it's very fast. Uh, do you d totally disrupt that flow by issuing a challenge every 30, 45, minute and a half if you think there's an infraction? So I, I don't know if, if that's the idea. Um, more maybe it's the next review. stoppage of play. Maybe it's the next stoppage of play. You go back and you say, you know what? All right, he was high. We, we missed it there. We're not gonna. We're not gonna disrupt play then. 
And look, I know, I know, we're we're kind of throwing this at the wall here and, and see if, it, but maybe then once play stops, you go back, you review it, Maroon's high stick, you say, all right, that's that's two minutes, and you start the penalty there. It's not perfect. It doesn't disrupt it's, flow, but, but you it, still but in bust a way them. It does. But it, but it does because what what if the next stoppage of play isn't for three minutes of of actual gameplay and during that three minutes another team scores, <laughs> like sure just no no it, for it, sure I mean there's a lot to unpack there it's not perfect it, yeah it's it's tough to imagine opening up to more challenges I get the idea because you you want to get the calls right um, but I I just I don't know if that's the way the other thing is too is is you know there's going to be human elements involved I don't think you can ever get away from that. Uh, humans as a species are imperfect uh, for sure. Um, so, it, you know, you have to understand that that's going to happen. And guys are sometimes going to miss calls, but that's also why a lot of times players are forced to quote unquote embellish plays like that. Right. Like look at the one that they missed on Steven Stamkos. He clearly got clipped and he kind of moved his head back a little bit, but he kept playing. Right. So what if he snaps his head back to draw attention to it? Does he get the call then? So now you're forcing players into a situation to say, geez, maybe I need to make sure the referee sees this. Right. And that was a play. I, I think that was in the defensive zone when that happened. If memory serves me correct, we know the certainly one that Maroon had was on a scoring chance and mm -hmm. kind of took away a pretty good scoring chance. And then, you know, you find out. <laughs> 10 seconds later that you end up taking a penalty and, and the other team scores on us. So that makes it sting even more, but, but our players now going to have to, for lack of a better term, embellish situations to make sure that they get the referee's attention. We've seen it before. I mean, we've, how many times we've seen Sidney Crosby, he get a stick across his visor and his head snaps back like he was in a car accident. Right. And then I'm not picking on Sidney Crosby. Other players do it, but you know, we see that a lot. Is that now forcing players to be in a situation where they have to make sure the referees do see it or at least get their attention to try and make the call and then put the referees in an uncompromising situation to where they have to make a decision one way or the other. I think players have been embellishing for a long time. I'm not necessarily sure. worried too much about that. I, I, I am worried that you miss a high stick, guys bleeding, and nothing is called. And look, maybe look, maybe you've, you're onto it. Maybe it's just the human element to this, and guys are going to miss it. It's hard to accept it with the technology that we have today that you can't be better at finding these things. Because my thing is, if you're going to have technology and you're not going to use it, then what's the point of having technology? And I, I get, I mean, certain things like goals and other things can be reviewed. But, um, you know, look, late in the game, if Tampa Bay's pushing and all of a sudden guy gets high sticked in the mouth and there's blood gushing and, and nothing is called, that's a that's a problem. I mean, it, it'd be tough for me to sit here and say, yeah, yeah, it's the human element. He just missed the call, <laughs> and uh, you can't do anything about it. So um, maybe maybe it is just the human element. You keep things the way they are, and you just hope the officiating gets better. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. I think it's ingrained in these guys to kind of swallow the whistle late in the game. I actually give credit to ones that do call penalties late. It, it's few and far between. But like I said, then maybe there just needs to be a little bit more accountability when we start talking about the referees and explaining to the public what they saw when they missed the call. I, I'd, I'd actually probably like that a little bit more. Let me know what you're thinking. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, you know, with the officials and the accountability, it's, it's really the one 
league, although I guess you don't hear too often from soccer officials and, you know, they, they get mired in controversy quite a bit as well. If we want to kind of tie it back into the opening topic. Um, but yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing officials or at least something sort of at least have them explain the situation you know what? And the best example for me on that, and I'm sure lightning fans remember this quite well in 2014, the no goal in the series against Montreal in the playoffs because uh, they determined that Alex Kalorn had not gotten out of Carey Price's way after Ryan Callahan had scored. And who knows where that series would have went. That was game three. They were already down two nothing at the time. And, you know, who knows where things go, but there was nobody that I could get a hold of. And again, I was working for the newspaper at the time. There was nobody that would explain the situation to the media like we tried to go through the canadians of course the canadians aren't going to help us out in that spot they're supposed to be a league representative for each series um to at least get a hold of for explanations nobody nobody would give us somebody even as a pool reporter if anybody's not familiar with what a pool reporter is basically one person is assigned to be the person to kind of ask questions or get comments uh, we see this in major league baseball a lot uh, to be able to report and then give back and then share that with the entire media pool. So that's a pool reporter. We couldn't get somebody like that to explain in full the reason why that Ryan Callahan goal did not count. And But I can tell you this too, as much as I would like to see, especially in controversial situations, just to kind of get officials to explain themselves, I had the opportunity for a couple of years in the press box to sit next to Don Kaharski. And Don Kaharski certainly mired in plenty of controversy in his days as an NHL official. Um, you know, I, I would be able to kind of pick his brain a little bit and, and see how things went on on the ice. And, you know, these guys do actually get their calls right more often than they get them wrong. The problem is, is that when they get it wrong, it certainly stands out even more. So it, it's, it's a difficult situation. I don't know what the right, solution is i don't know if there is a perfect solution there's probably not or else we would have been in that by now um but i i think it it does need to be better i think there needs to be more consistency to officiating and kind of how things are done and um i I don't know if if the tim peel situation is going to bring us to a quicker way to get there or not probably not i mean i i honestly the impact of tim peel i i think it just exposes what already in some instances goes on <laughs> he he just said he it just did. said what a lot of people probably felt and he got caught that's why i think getting rid of the mic makes a lot of sense i'm actually surprised how many players supported him maybe i shouldn't be because they they do talk pat maroon was very very supportive oh, yeah. of Tim Peel. I was, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and honestly, it, it didn't seem like the players had an issue with it. And maybe that's just because years and years of just accepting this is what it is. They're, yeah, they're conditioned to think that. Don't way. forget, Mary Lemieux retired because he called the officiating garbage. Yeah. You remember that? And then it took a yeah. lockout for the league to get scoring back up because they wanted to make the game a little more entertaining. They called penalties left and right. Some people felt like there were more penalties that, that should have been called. But, you know, maybe maybe that's what you have to do to get a cleaner game. I, maybe that's – at the end of the day, maybe that's what it is. It's just more accountability. That's kind of life in general. People don't want to be held accountable for the decisions they make. And well, I think in this instance, probably holding the officials, like they do with the players, accountable could go a long way in making it a, a little more smoother uh, come playoff time. 
Well, and you bring up Lemieux, and that's a good point. Who, who was it that ended up breaking his wrist with a slash? Do you remember? That was, was um, Adam Graves. Adam Graves. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of brings us around to another point on the officiating. Are the players protected enough by the officials? Like we talk about policing on the ice and, and all that situation. And not that you have to go out of your way, but your star players are your star players, and you want to promote the star players. They've star never players, protected what their makes, star players. Right, right. Like now they, they have cracked down on the slashing and whether people agree with it or not, anytime you get the stuck stick up near the hands, you're going to get called nowadays. I, for one, I like that. I don't want, you know, and it took a Johnny Gaudreau, I think, who broke his wrist a couple of years ago. I mean, it, can you imagine if somebody broke Patrick Kane's wrist? What effect that could have on his career? What if somebody broke his wrist on a vicious slash when he was 24 years old? How much would that have affected his career? So I, I that's where that's where I think the officiating needs to be more involved because guys will take liberties and look and that's another reason why we get to the playoffs we talk so much about the importance of the grinders the guys who because they're going to get away with maybe more things than they normally would uh, especially when you're trying to go after the the other team's top players and I know that's been a strategy I mean what's the old saying the quarter the other team's quarterback must go down and he must go down hard because that's going to yeah. give you a better chance to win a game and I just I think that there needs to be more uh, more calls made when they're penalties, not looking for calls. I don't think you can be Tim Peel going, ah, that wasn't much there, but I wanted to call a penalty. Just call the the penalties that are are uh, that are committed. And I think if we do that, especially when teams start to take liberties at other players, I think I think there can be an understanding that we get to that knowing that it's never going to be perfect, but that you can get to a point where you're understanding and acceptable yeah. the way games are being called. I, I think it's interesting. You know, I, you mentioned penalties, the star players. I look back, it was the year <sighs> the Lightning beat the Bruins, was it in five? Remember they lost their first game and uh, then they rolled the next four, but I can't remember if it was game two or game three. Remember when it was Kucherov who he pulled down a Bruin player? You remember that? And uh, the Lightning scored the game winner. It was like late in the third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yep, it was the Steven Stamkos third period goal. And it was, I think, it might have been it McAvoy. It was a little bit of a hook. It, it was, was McAvoy. A hook, I think, on McAvoy, yeah. Swallowed that, the that whistle. Swallowed the whistle. I mean, it happens. I think it happens too often. And that's the problem with the officials. They've never believed in protecting your star player. Maybe because they, they still have this notion that the team – the teams will police themselves. But when you have guys like Tom Wilson running around, leaving their feet, hitting people in the head, no, that that's not, that's not happening. And so I, I think it's going to be very hard to do to change that mindset with some of these officials who have been like this for so long. Maybe the only way to do it is to get younger blood in there and continue to promote guys through the ranks, but they have to be taught, you know, this is, this is how we're calling games today. We're not, we're not doing things we did 25 years ago. So, I'm not hopefully, and I'm just going to assume that the officials will be inconsistent. Game in, game out, series in, series out. And you just hope the team with the most talent is able to overcome not only the team they're playing, but also some calls that don't go their way. Yep, yep. And I'm sure in about six weeks, Greg, we'll probably have the same conversation. I'm yes, sure we that will. we'll come up we will. in some capacity, whether it involves the Lightning or not. Now we we had mentioned the key injury to a central division team and if anybody saw it uh, look away 
because it's uh, watching Aaron Ekblad go down in the corner against the Dallas Stars, not through any type of a vicious hit, not through anything that should have been called, just an unfortunate play where his skate got kind of caught under his leg. Uh, gave me, I don't know if you remember this, but gave me some serious Anton Strawman vibes mm. when he broke his leg when he got tangled up with Anders Lee uh, against the Islanders back in 2016, like a week and a half before the playoffs started. He actually ended up with a fracture in his uh, in his leg, uh, kept him out, I think, five or six weeks before he was able to come back as a lightning one in the playoffs. Um, no word yet as we talk here today on what the injury is to Aaron Ekblad. Uh, whether it's a, a ligament issue, whether it's a, a, a fracture in the leg, but you could tell from his reaction, he knew something was wrong right away. Uh, the fact that they took him off on a stretcher is not encouraging in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we, we wish and we hope that Aaron Ekblad, uh, it's not as bad as it seems, did not sound encouraging from when Joel Quenville talked to the media after the game. But how much does the loss of Aaron Ekblad change the view of the top three teams in the central division yeah i mean probably a lot and i don't know what florida has to work with to you know address ekblad being out longer term thank goodness strawman wasn't claimed off waivers because i think he's been playing pretty well you know gudis has been very solid for them what concerns you i think and me for a lot of people that cover the NHL is their goaltending. What are you going to have? And, you know, do they have to trade one of their goaltenders now? Maybe to shore up their back end. You know, can you live with Bobrovsky and trade the other guy? Can you trade the other guy and and have somebody eat Bobrovsky's contract? Probably not in, in today's world. So I think the Florida Panthers are going to have to get a little creative. Ekblad was doing things that Victor Hedman does for Tampa Bay. That's how good he's been this year. I'm not putting them on the same wavelength talent wise but this is a guy who what he was a number one overall pick I mean I, I think there yeah. is a lot of people who said he's finally coming into his own this year and being the guy that they thought he was going to be when they drafted him number one overall a few years back so it's a big it's a big blow does it mean they can't win a championship without him no teams have done it before Pittsburgh comes to mind when Chris Letang missed the back-to-back um, -back run for Tampa Bay or for Pittsburgh uh, when they were going for it their second year after winning the Cup in the first year. It can be done. The question is, do you have enough goaltending to overcome that? Because I think Florida has the pieces this year to be very competitive. They're fast. They're skilled. Do they have the goaltending to overcome a loss like Ekblad? I don't know. And um, to me, that's still the biggest question, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. Now, E, if they have to put him on long-term IR – how does that work? Do they still have whatever they would have paid him for those remaining games left to work with to address bringing somebody in? I'm assuming that's what, what would happen, right? Well, you could certainly put him on, on LTI. Uh, I don't know how close to the cap the Panthers were at the start of the season. We saw this with what Tampa Bay did, right? Because you had to put Tyler Johnson on waivers and, and, push yourself up as close to the cap as you possibly could to maximize the LTI pool. So I don't know exactly where the Panthers were at the beginning of the season, but yeah, you can put them on LTI and you will get cap relief for going over the cap by a certain amount. Uh, if not his full cap hit close to the cap hit for the remainder of the season. So they could potentially go out and address this through a trade if they needed to, if they felt they wanted to, uh, we know how much teams really covet right-handed shot defensemen. Uh, so the market is always tougher 
to bring in guys like that. I know a guy like Brandon Montour has been brought up uh, among Lightning fans as a potential uh, target. I know that he was kind of on their radar a few years ago when he was traded from Anaheim to Buffalo. Um, so we'll, we'll see if that happens. But let me ask you this. We've talked in previous times about the potential importance of being first in the central division and the quote unquote prize, if you will, for whatever team finishes in fourth, whether it's Nashville who has climbed their way back and actually sits in a playoff spot as we record this right now, whether it's Chicago, whether it's a a Dallas team that can try and claw their way back into it, whether it's Columbus, as opposed to facing a Carolina or a Florida from a Tampa Bay perspective in the first round. Does this change your mindset that now maybe as long as you avoid Carolina in the first round, that the, that, you know, a depleted, a, a, you know, a a Florida team that has a a huge injury on their back end, does this change the thinking about the need to finish first in this division? I, I haven't been on the side of Tampa Bay needs to finish first. I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting, but to stay away from certain matchups. But I, I have understood where people are coming from that obviously you'd rather face Chicago or Nashville in the first round compared to Carolina or Florida in the second, or in the first, I should say. So for me, it doesn't care. But I got to be honest, I, I think even without Ekblad, Florida gives the Lightning some problems. I don't think as great as Carolina, but there are two teams that play in a similar style that makes Tampa Bay uncomfortable. So even with this loss to Ekblad, it is huge. It is devastating. Don't know how long he's going to be out. We need to emphasize that. But I think their forwards, there are enough of them now. They can make Tampa Bay in a seven-game series feel a little awkward and sweat it out. And boy, oh boy, if they get some goaltending to complement that, you've got yourself a heck of a series. So I still think Carolina and Florida give Tampa Bay more issues than any team in that division, stating the obvious. I think Carolina's the team that would give me more pause than anyone in a seven-game series. But I don't want to take on Florida in that first round if I don't have to. I don't. I think they've got enough there that if their goaltending is right, we've seen good goaltending shore up suspect defensive play before. I'm not telling you that's in Bobrovsky to do this year, but it might. It might. He could catch fire. Boy, oh, boy, we've seen... We've seen Bobrovsky not be a train wreck against the Lightning in a playoff series, and different team I understand in Columbus, but he he does that have he does have that on his track record to go back to and say, all right, I beat this team in the playoffs, I can do it again. Yeah. So my point would be, I don't look at the Ekblad injury and say they're an easier team to face because I think their forwards will still put a lot of pressure on Tampa Bay's team and put them in some uncomfortable positions. Yep. There's certainly a deeper team forward wise. Uh, you know, they really relied on um, Huberdeau and Barkov and to a certain extent, um, Trocek, Vincent Trocek, who was traded to Carolina last year to provide their offense. They've got more depth card over Hagee. And I know Lightning fans just cringed and mentioned that, but he's having a fantastic year coming off a hat trick performance the other night four point performance against Dallas actually had a power play goal an even strength goal and a shorthanded goal uh, so too short of the Mario Lemieux hat trick um, you know so they get they've got more depth than they've had in the past up front uh, but you know that is a big blow to their back end he does Ekblad does so much for them 
in terms of the role that he plays. Uh, so I think it is a, a bit of a game changer when it comes to facing a Florida team that maybe you can attack their defense a little bit more uh, with the lightning speed, you know, with, with the way that they're able to forecheck, as long as they get their forecheck game going. Uh, problem is we haven't seen that enough against Florida this year to know that it's potentially sustainable. Now we'll see there's uh, one there four more matchups, I think between Tampa Bay and Florida, uh, including the rescheduled game that will now take place on May 10th. So they'll close out the season with back-to-back games against Florida on May 8th and May 10th before the postseason is scheduled to get underway. So, uh, but we'll be very interesting to see how the Panthers handle this uh, down the stretch and what kind of an impact it has on the central division. Uh, all right, before we get to player or to fan questions, we haven't touched on the Alex Volkov trade at all. Uh, it was interesting to hear Julian Brisebois, at least in his release statement, he didn't actually speak to the media about the move, but he did release a statement. We're saying that if the salary cap, if they had salary cap space, they did not want to trade Alex Volkov, but the situation dictated that they had to. So he goes to Anaheim for uh, a player and a, a pick down the line um does does this does this trade really hurt tampa bay's depth in your mind i don't think i don't think so i mean you know kucherov comes back they're gonna have an interesting decision to make with their their last forward in the lineup i think you have guys in bari boulay ross colton jamel smith who have come up and done some pretty nice things that you have some immediate depth at that forward position if somebody were to go down. So, no, Volkov reminded me, honestly, of a lot of Adam Ernie. There's a lot of hype. Got to the big club and showed flashes every once in a while, but not enough. Maybe a change of scenery is what he needs because he's a he's a top six talent. At least that's what they tell you playing in a bottom six role, and that just wasn't something that he was capable of doing consistently at the NHL level. So I never was impressed with Volkov. I wish him well, and I think a fresh start probably is what he needed, kind of like Adam Ernie. And sometimes that happens in sports. You know, you you have guys pegged a certain way. They come up, and they're playing in a different environment, kind of a different role, and they just never really can adjust. And I think that's what we saw with Volkov. And um, I don't think it hurts their depth too much. I know everybody wants to go back to the penalty he drew in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. That's great. But uh, he had more moments of not doing much than he did of that Game 6 moment for the Lightning. And I think they probably saw enough and said it's it's just not going to work out here. Well, let's face it, too. The emergence of Ross Colton, who's a natural center, where Volkov is a winger. That's true. Um, probably dictated this as much as anything else is, I mean, we know the cap has dictated a, a few moves that Tampa Bay has had to do this year. And, and this being one of them, because I, I think there's still more there for Volkov to be able to find. I mean, this is a guy who did have two 20 goal seasons for Syracuse. I know it doesn't always translate from the AHL to the NHL, but uh, I think he is a top nine guy. I think he was being asked to play a role he's probably not comfortable with. He is, he's got some offensive skills to his game, um, but he was playing in a fourth line role. Um, so you're not going to get the opportunities to showcase some of your top talents. Now that's, I'm not giving him an out here because you're asked to play a role. You go out and play it, whether you, you think it's your role or not, you go out and play it. I mean, Ross Colton's a guy who was playing 20 minutes a night in Syracuse. He was a top line center by the end of last season. And he's, 
come and ask here and, and to play a, a Pat Maroon style of game, and he's done it. And I think that that's a, a testament to Ross Colton um, to be able to come in and play the way he has. Uh, so I agree with you. I don't think this necessarily really dips too much in the Tampa Bay's depth. Um, we're still waiting for Taylor Radish to get his opportunity to, to see where he stands in terms of playing at the NHL level. He's more of a power forward. Again, probably more of a top nine guy, but I think he has the, the size to play uh, a lower line role if he gets into it, when and if he gets into a game here at some point, he's been with a taxi squad for, geez, it feels like three weeks now. Uh, and he hasn't gotten into a game. So we'll see where things go uh, with, with that. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think it really damages their depth too much, especially with Mitchell Stevens coming back. That's going to be the interesting thing. Normally players don't lose their spot due to injury, but I think Mitchell Stevens is going to have to wait for his opportunity when he's healthy. I agree. Because if this is truly a meritocracy, Ross Colton deserves the opportunity to play even when Kucherov comes back. And you can take that however you want to, at least right now. Uh, I understand injuries happen and a lot can change. Ross Colton may hit a wall. Ross Colton may not be playing well by the end of the year. Who knows? And maybe Mitchell Stevens gets back to playing where he was last year for this year. But at least right now, Colton's the guy. Now, do I think they're going to get Stevens into some games at Colton's expense? Probably. He's got to keep his head up and keep plugging away every time he gets an opportunity to play because he is making that fourth line noticeable. He yes. gives them a little bit more offense than I think you even see from Mitchell Stevens. And honestly, the two best guys on that fourth line this year have been Colton and Jamel Smith, if we're being truly yeah. honest about production. So that's how I would look at it. I think Stevens has got to work his way in to this competition when he does get that opportunity it needs to be more than Mitchell Stevens wins faceoffs because you can't because be guess what guess what Ross Colton's doing he's yeah, winning faceoffs right. and he's right. doing a lot more than just winning faceoffs he's injected some energy into that line I think it's helped that he's played with Matthew Joseph with the crunch last year I, I think that you can't discount the understanding that those two have um, but I think Pat Maroon's been a great leader on that line if you will. he's not a driver of the line but he's leader of the line I mean there's a lot of respect that that Pat Maroon has and I think Ross Colton and Matthew Joseph are buying into that and whether you take this as good or bad that's been their best line the last week and a half if you want to try and dig into it a little bit and I think it was noticeable because Colton didn't play in the first game against Dallas and then they had the situation where they had to actually dress a player short in game two against the stars to be able to kick in that salary cap uh, emergency exemption that they were able to do. Um, so uh, the, if, again, whether you want to take it as a good sign or a bad sign, but Maroon Colton and Joseph have been the most effective line in their 10 minutes of ice time that they're getting a game because they're producing. They yeah. got the two goals in Carolina. They got the, uh, you know, Colton had the winning goal against Chicago about a week and a half ago. Um, you know, they are contributing offensively, which that is a huge bonus for them. Uh, and again, they've, they've been their most effective line the last week plus. Yeah. Pat Maroon likes playing with Colton. Joseph likes playing with him. He's fast. I think he's smart. He's got enough season at the minor league level where I think he understands his role. Don't know what the upside is for him. Doesn't matter. I think for this team, he understands what he needs to do better than some of the other younger guys who have come up, certainly more than Volkov. And uh, I go back to what Glenn Sather used to say when he coached those great teams, the Oilers in the 80s, that you need your third and fourth liners to 
constantly give you that competition year in and year out because you're not going to change your top six too much. Where your team grows is having third and fourth line guys always competing every year for spots because those are the guys that you're going to see, for the most part, be changed every year because of just whatever it is, cap issues, paying your top guys the most dollars. So you have to constantly find guys who can come up and create that atmosphere where competition makes you better. And I think the Lightning right now are kind of in that sweet spot with Ross Colton and some of these other guys as well. Yep, it will be interesting to kind of see how things play out, uh, assuming there's no injuries that kind of disrupt things. And, you know, as you said, usually these things do tend to sort themselves out. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, But I think Ross Colton has earned his spot for now, and it's his spot to lose uh, going down the stretch. All right, before we get to our uh, listener questions, want to make sure we take care of our sponsor. Uh, You've heard us talk about them before, but manscaped.com. The keyword is bolts. So if you go to manscaped.com, click on any of their items. Doesn't matter what it is, the lawnmower, the weed whacker, T-shirts, boxers, cologne, anything. 20% off your entire order plus free shipping. It's a deal that you can't be beat. And, you know, I know, Greg, we've talked a lot about their products here in the past. It's it's just a continuing line. Everything that we end up with uh, is something that is a quality product that you can utilize in your everyday life to make you look and feel better. Yeah, and you mentioned the cologne before. I have some of that now, the refined cologne. It is as good as advertised. And again, with that 20% discounting, you're getting you're getting these products at a, a really decent price. And I think, you know, as guys, we always say you need to uh, look your best from time to time. You can't look slovenly, as they say. And uh, Manscaped, with everything they have, uh, allows you to look sharp. And uh, we're going to do that, too, because we, we're going to be in front of some people talking at uh, Emily Green on Tuesday for the broadcast. So we got to make sure that we're all, we're all looking good. And that's what you do with and Manscaped. W- and with fans back in the stands, we have more people to look good for. No doubt. Because it's so great to have fans back in the stands. So if you want to look your best at Amelie Arena and watching the Lightning, again, make sure you check out manscaped.com. You keyword bolts for 20% off plus free shipping off anything, anything on their site. All right, let's get to these questions because, once again, uh, some really good ones coming from from you guys. We appreciate all of it. Uh, appreciate everybody listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, share it, give the reviews, anything you can. It really goes a long ways. All right. Uh, in our mailbag this week, the first one comes from Faye. Uh, I know Julian Breezeball has said he doesn't anticipate moving at trade deadline, but do you think anything will be done to bolster the right side defensively and brings up uh, Stetcher and Clendenning? Although that that can't be the right name, because uh, Curtis Glendening is a center, um, so I don't know who who Faye means here. But we've talked about this. It's just with the cap situation the team is in. If there's any move that's going to be made, it it can't be for futures, right? You you can't trade prospects or picks like they did last year when they were able to bring in Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman by utilizing two first round draft picks and Nolan foot, who was their first round pick in 2019, you know, you can't do that because you can't add significant salary or as Julian said, really any salary to this team. So if any moves are going to be made, I think they need to make some moves. 
I don't know if they're going to be able to do it because the salary cap, as we've seen already this year, dictates so much what a what Tampa Bay is able to do. I think Faye, they're going to do something. I think she might have been talking about Adam Clendenning, defenseman, righty shot, who's currently playing uh, in the AHL. He's had a little bit of time at the okay. NHL level, not many, but he's exactly the guy you're probably talking about depth-wise because he's got some NHL experience and he's not going to be expensive. That's the route I think they're going to have to go unless you're going to trade somebody who's making a substantial amount of money on your NHL roster for somebody coming back. Uh, whether it's righty or lefty, I don't know. We, in, in many ways, I, I think in this point, do you just take the best defenseman available at, at the price? Because I, I think you can never have enough quality to defensemen. And righty, lefty, I, I understand you want to you want to be a bit picky, but if you can't, do you just want to bring somebody in uh, regardless of where they shoot just to have a little bit more depth. But I, I think they are going to do something. I do. What they have to give up to get it, that remains to be seen. Yep, it's going to be interesting because uh, I agree with you. I think they need to do something. I just don't know what kind of flexibility they're going to be able to have. Um, you know, look, we, we've danced around it, so let's just say it. Tyler Johnson's the most likely guy, right? Because of the top nine forwards, he's probably underperformed this year. Uh, we know the situation with him in the offseason when he was the guy that kind of went to and said, hey, we would like you to consider waiving your no trade for this. And then he went through that whole situation and the Kucherov injury sort of helped alleviate that, at least for the time being. But if you're an opposing team's GM and you're watching Tyler Johnson play, are you adding him to your team? Well, why in the world would you do that? And if you do, <laughs> right? if you do... Tampa Bay is going to have to eat some of that they salary. Are. That's the only way that that makes sense. I so, mean, from what you're getting production-wise, uh, that's just not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. And, you know, we can get into this probably another podcast for sure. It'll be interesting to see what the lineup is going to be. But Tyler Johnson's not – he's not having the year you would have hoped – to give you options as a team that you may need come playoff time. Whether he's helping yeah. your team and you keep him, or whether you want to address a position, he's one of those guys you probably could have looked at and said, would a team be willing to take on the contract to get the prospect or player Tampa Bay wants in return? Now, I, I just I don't see that happening. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Um, because, as, you know, if there was a trade to be made for Tyler Johnson, it would have been made. Yeah, it's not happening. In the offseason, look, I mean, Julian did come out and say that there were teams pre-COVID that had an interest in Tyler Johnson. Um, dynamics have changed. His contract, you know, a $5 million a year uh, would be a lot for certain teams to take in. And then there's that whole no-trade situation that you would have to convince him to move. And if you're Tyler Johnson, are you doing that now? You you considered it at the beginning in the offseason, but would you consider it now? I don't know if you're Tyler Johnson if you do that from Keith uh, Cal foot has been receiving some big minutes with all the injuries on the right side. Are you happy with his performance to this point? Can we comfortably say he is part of the future there along with Chernak? Uh, the second part of that, absolutely. Uh, so a long way to go for Cal foot, but uh, I think we've had this discussion before, Greg, I think Cal foot has exceeded my expectations with his play this year. Yeah. Uh, it was a slow start as you would expect for a player jumping into the NHL for the first time, especially on defense. But if you look at his progression in the last four or five weeks, 
he has taken leaps and bounds forward. I think the expanded ice time he had, especially in the game against Dallas, I thought was a huge step for him. Um, you know, we've seen Mikhail Sergachev kind of go along the same right. avenue a little bit in terms of how you saw his ice time start to jump up at certain times, and then they would reel it back. I think we'll see that a little bit here with Cal Foot, depending on how much time Eric Chernak is going to miss. Uh, but I am happy. I am pleased with what Cal Foot has been able to do to this point. Uh, the offense hasn't been there, but that's okay. You're not looking for Cal Foot to score like Mikhail Sergachev, but I think there's, as he gets more comfortable, you'll see that part of his game start to develop a little bit more. And we've seen it a few times. I mean, a couple of times, what was he, he was driving in a net the other night against Dallas yeah. on a middle net drive, you know, so he has those instincts. And he understands how they're asking him to play. So what does that mean for come playoff time? At the end of the day, he is still a rookie, but he has first round pedigree. And as long as he continues to work on his skating and his foot speed, especially his first couple of strides, I'm very pleased with where Cal Foot has developed in yeah. a short period of time here at the NHL. And where he may take his biggest leap development-wise is in the playoffs. And it might not always be pretty. Let's make make no mistake. That's going to be his first taste of playoff hockey. It's going to seem super fast. And he may be a little bit hesitant in, in an environment like that, and he might not be playing a ton. But I think everything he absorbs in the playoffs will make him a better defenseman for next year. So my expectations were low just because they typically are with defensemen who haven't played at all. He's done well. I'd like to see him be a little bit more physical. I think he has the body to be that guy, but some of that just could be getting his feet wet and not trying to do too much. So I, I like what I've seen. I'd continue to run him out there. No need to, I think, sit him from here on out. I think every game he gets will make him a little bit more comfortable come playoff time, and that is the goal of this team, whether it's in first place or whether it's in fourth place, setting yourself up for success in the playoffs, and that would mean playing foot as much as you can from here on out. Yeah, and I think he's really on path to be a number three, number four type of defenseman in the league, and I think that that's encouraging uh, from where things sit here in his first NHL year, his third year as a pro. What will be interesting is, you know, he comes out of his entry-level contract at the end of this year, so what's his cap hit going to jump to? That'll be something to keep an eye on. Uh, from Noel time, I would assume that's in reference to the Florida State Seminoles, who... Lost in the NCAA tournament to Michigan yesterday. Sorry about that. If the Lightning add a depth defenseman, does a left-handed shot make more sense? This is There is no way the Lightning acquire a legitimate top four, given that fact. I like Shannon on the right side as depth more than the Borgman on the left. Uh, interesting question because we have focused so much on the right-hand side. Um, but when you're stacked on the left, the way Tampa Bay is with Hedman, McDonough, and Sergachev, and with McDonough having missed the past three games, it has brought Andreas Borgman into the fold. Uh, I still think right-hand shot makes the more sense because you have even less depth on that side. Uh, granted, you can move Sergachev from the left to the right. We've seen the Lightning do that. In the past, we've seen that do that in games. I think once you get to the playoffs, the, the top five guys, assuming they're all healthy, are going to log a ton of ice time, um, depending on how series are going and how games are going. Uh, so I don't know if acquiring a lefty is necessarily something that they will explore. You can't discount it. Uh, certainly the, the defensive depth as a whole is the one hole that this team might have as you sort of analyze things heading towards the end of the postseason, but they do have a guy like Sean day 
uh, in Syracuse. He's got some NHL experience, uh, probably as much as uh, Borgman had coming into the season, uh, the one year he played with Toronto. So I don't know if left-handed shot is necessarily more of a area they have to look at. I just think defensive depth as a whole is something that they have to look at with the right-handed guys probably being a priority if you had your choice. Yeah, and I think uh, Borgman spoke to him last week. He can play the right side too. So I think you know he played in the fall, we, and it allowed him to play some minutes and not be completely rusty. That's the other thing too th- through all this. I mean, I- I'd like to see more of him to get a better feel of what I have going into the playoffs. But I, I think Julian's going to do something, as I said before. Beggars can't be choosers. I think if you can add somebody, whether it's righty or lefty, to your organization that makes sense at the back end, I think they will. All right, from Robert Skipper, this is an interesting question. Buffalo's winless streak can reach 18 tonight, and we're recording this on Monday, so it's 17. Um, I think 0-16-1 and one is actually where they're at, which is just an incredible feat. Uh, it's been a while since Tampa Bay has had nearly as bad of a season uh, as that. As someone who does ask players and coaches questions, what's your process in crafting, choosing a question, is it easier to ask when the team wins like they have the last seven years? It certainly makes it quote unquote easier. Um, you do have to be when you sort of craft questions to players and look, I, I covered some of those not so good lighting teams, not as bad as a 16, 17 game winless streak, which by the way, this team at one point in their franchise's history did ha- did have two separate 16 game winless streaks within the same season, which is before yeah. I did come around. Uh, but I did cover some teams that had not so much success on the ice. And I think you just have to be cognizant of putting, not, not putting the players or the coaches, whoever you're asking the question to, in a situation to where they will feel offended or like, it, as long as the questions are fair, I think the players and coaches understand what our role is in the media to ask the questions that we do, but you do have to be in in situations where, you know, the players like they are in Buffalo are going through a very demanding time in terms of their performance. Um, I don't know if you have to craft it a certain way. I think you just have to be cognizant of what it is you're asking, why you're asking it and uh, what type of a reaction are you looking for? If, if you want to be like, say Larry Brooks in New York. And, you know, we know that he can ask some questions that will set people off. Sometimes, sometimes I think he does it for effect. There are reporters that do handle it that way. I'm not like that. I like to be uh, respectful of the subject that I'm interviewing. Uh, so I, I guess to kind of get around to the whole question, uh, I don't know if I necessarily dance around things, but I do just try and be more cognizant of what it is I'm asking. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Sometimes, too, don't forget with these teams that have these long losing streaks, you're dealing with a lot of younger players who aren't as accomplished in the league as some others. Now, they do have some veterans, no doubt, and they did trade away Stahl recently, so there's another voice in that locker room. Skinner, Eichel's been dinged up, so he hasn't been around. But when you deal with younger players, typically a little bit more, you can not that you can get away with more of those questions, but those guys, in many ways, they're not going to be as short as some veterans who might be annoyed at those constant questions game in and game out. I also think it's an interesting time to ask questions pointed more towards the general manager and ownership. Those guys sometimes are a little bit more 
available during streaks like this because let's face it a lot of people yes you're talking about the product on the ice but you're also talking about what are you going to do to fix it and sometimes the owners and general managers can be the ones who are a little bit more vocal during a period of time like this and i think those are the guys that a lot of media members want to speak to because the onus is on them to fix it and they're the ones that have gotten them to this point where they are awful so uh, a lot of times too you're you're dealing with a coaching change and typically the coaches in that environment are going to be pretty accessible and i think they understand that it's it's part of the job but i think to your point as long as you're not coming out and saying look you know um your team stinks what are you going to do about it you ask it in a way that you know you maybe even point out some positives that went on in a game that they recently lost and said you know you talked about your team defense wanting to limit them to 30 shots instead of uh, 35 were you please i mean there are ways you can you can be a wordsman a little bit and get a, a good response from a team that is losing but i think sometimes you also have to look at it too and say um, I want to get access to the general manager or the owner in something like this, in a season like this, because I, I find what they have to say probably is a little bit more interesting than the players every day. So you wouldn't come out and just ask, hey, why do you suck? <laughs> well, some have. Some have. It's not going to work they out have. well, but some have. have. Some have. Uh, it, and I will say this, too. It has to be much more difficult in the current environment that we're in because it's it's one thing to be in a locker room situation and being able to look the players in the eye and try and find a question. These Zoom meetings for situations like they're in, again, love the fact that we have this type of access, especially for road games uh, when we're not able to travel and be there. Um, but it is, it is different. It has to be harder for the players on the other side of that because – and sometimes it's a faceless voice that you're hearing, yeah. and that kind of makes it a little bit more separation, right? Like if there's more of a human element involved if you're in the locker room and, and try and portray it that way. So uh, it has to be more difficult for the Buffalo uh, faithful and the, the Buffalo media in this situation in the Zoom meetings. Um, from Violet, and first of all, I want to pass along condolences to Violet. She recently said on Twitter that she lost her mother. So Violet, you have our, our thoughts and, and oh, concerns and, and um, there, yeah. I hope everything uh, can get back to as close to normal as you can. And, and I, I did send something to Violet and Violet, I mean those words. Um, so I hope you take them to heart. Uh, her question is, uh, how do you feel about Nikita Kucherov coming back, cap health, all that? Uh, welcome addition, certainly when he does come back. Um, we don't know how healthy he is. I know he was traveling with the team, so he is skating more and more with the team. Uh, fortunately, nobody's put any videos out of him skating, so we haven't had people sort of set their alarms off to how can he be back already. They're circumventing the salary cap. Um, we'll see how the health is in terms of when he's ready to come back. But I can tell you this is the salary cap situation we've talked about quite a bit just in this episode that he, if he comes back, if he's ready to come back in the regular season, I don't know how the Lightning make it fit because you have to make moves up until the end of the regular season. You must remain cap compliant. The good news in all that is once you get to the playoffs, there is no salary cap. So assuming that the timeline is right in the four to five months and the start of the playoffs would be four and a half months, so it would be right in the middle of that return timeline. Assuming that's when he comes back, when he's able to come back, if he's ready to come back at that time, there is no salary cap. And, you know, you want to talk about an addition to your lineup going into the playoffs, adding a 128-point score, that's pretty good to have in yeah, your back pocket. it is. And, and look, I, I, I don't know 
what he's going to look like when he comes back, I, I think having him, especially on the power play, is going to help tremendously. I, I don't know how his body will react to playing physical hockey night and night out in the playoffs. Now, the good news is he should be relatively fresh. There, there isn't going to be a ton of wear and tear on him, but conditioning-wise, there's nothing like playing gamesy to get you set for the postseason. But having his skill set out there, and I, I think, again, especially on the power play, I think will make a huge difference. And I also think getting him back with Steven Stamkos is going to be a big deal because I, I have not liked Stammer and Point together recently. I think that has gone south in a hurry. And I was a little surprised they didn't switch up the lines in the third period of their last game. But I wouldn't be surprised if Stamkos and Point aren't on the same line tomorrow night. And I'm talking yeah. about against Columbus. And I think Cooch, wherever he plays, is going to make them better. But it might be time to start seeing Stammer with Sorelli and Kalorn again. Yeah, which is what? It's only been a couple of games that he's been back with Point um, on that. So we'll, we'll see. The, the lines are always fluid. We know that. They are. Uh, Noel Time had a follow-up to his question about uh, maybe acquiring a left-handed shot defenseman, um, maybe someone that can play with Jan Ruda on the bottom pairing, 10 to 12 minutes a night. That allows Mikhail Sergachev to play on the right side with Victor Hedman. It, it, it's something to consider, but just based on the way that we've seen them handle the defensive pairings this year, they they like. Sergachev better on the left side and look he's still getting his minutes and we have seen him take shifts on the right right side we've seen him in these past two games with Eric Chernak's absence take shifts on the right side he can certainly play over there but uh, you just get the feeling they're more comfortable with him on his strong side on the left so uh, like it or not you have to understand that Jan Ruda is going to be Victor Hedman's semi consistent partner when you get to the playoffs because it would have been that way had Ruda not got injured in the round robin games in the playoff bubble last year and missing most of the playoffs before he came back for the final um you know I, I it's again it's something to consider I just don't think that the Lightning are going to do that I think that they're okay with Jan Ruda playing the right side with Victor Hedman and if you're going to look for any depth again to me it's on the right side yeah, uh, Roots is going to be in the in the lineup. He has chemistry with Victor Hedman come playoff time. I think his minutes will decrease a bit, but uh, again, I they're going to get. I think they're going to get a defenseman. How it all plays out with the depth and who's starting, where they whether they go eleven and seventy or twelve and six, I think with Kucherov coming back, you probably want to go twelve and six, especially just to see how he responds. Um, you know, you go 11 and seven and, and Kucherov's one of those guys. And let's say it's just not feeling and something happens and you're down 10 forwards. I, I think getting, getting another piece defensively is going to help. Roots is going to be in your top four. His minutes probably decline a bit once the playoffs start and the lightning rely on their four best defensemen, just like Chicago did uh, a couple years. They won the cup in the row. Yep, I agree. I think that's the route they're going to take once you get to the playoffs. Uh, a couple more here uh, from Karen. 
Uh, after reading your last article, observing the fatigue and some discussion on the podcast about injuries being up across the league and other effects of the extra fatigue, I'm wishing for a bye week. I assume one wasn't negotiated this year. Uh, it wasn't because of the time constraints. I mean, you didn't start the season until January. Remember, they didn't have any preseason games. You basically had 10 days of a training camp and jump right into a regular season schedule. Uh, there just wasn't a way under the timeline that the league needed to fit everything is. I mean, look, they're going to July as it is. Uh, I'm sure at this point, a lot of the teams are probably wishing that they could just get a three-day break, let alone a bi-week situation, because there's not many teams. Although I, I did find it interesting when Tampa Bay played Detroit earlier this year, the Red Wings hadn't played in like four games right. uh, or four days, which is must feel like a luxury uh, in in this season, because I even asked John Cooper after the game, I said, are these two days that the team has off between Saturday's game against Carolina and then starting the series against Columbus, it must feel like a bye week. Uh, he kind of chuckled at it, didn't really expand on it. But like I was obviously I'm being a little facetious there, but there is some some element to that because they did end up canceling practice on Monday, this practice they had talked about holding for weeks because they haven't had a full team practice since they played in Detroit at the beginning of March. Uh, but it, it, to try and negotiate in a bye week, it just wasn't going to be plausible this year. And then because of the restructuring and basically every team now after yeah. the Montreal situation has had their, their schedule you know, restructured and, and moved around in some capacity to where everybody's having to play a lot of games in a shorter period of time right. than, than normal. The way you get around it is if you didn't play this year and then set up next year, full 82-game slate, that wasn't going to happen because they wanted to retain some of the revenue that they potentially would have lost had they not played. I do think there are some serious questions about the health of the players short and long-term beyond COVID. I actually think the damage to their bodies playing this way is more significant than COVID based off of the data we've seen and, and everything that uh, is affected with COVID-19. I wonder when they get late in the year, if a team is, is soundly in a playoff spot and their position doesn't change too much, if uh, assuming the, the, the team wants to, because if it's a home game, they don't want to lose revenue and gates because as we know here in the States, fans are going back and uh, watching games that if you know you played 50 games or 49, um, is the league going to start canceling games? I think for sure teams that are out of a playoff spot, again, leave it up to them if they want to get that, that revenue at the gate, which I'm assuming they do. But I'm wondering if, if the league, kind of like last year, kind of cuts it off and says, we got to get the season in. If you've played 50 games, that's going to have to be good enough. Well, as long as there's no more disruptions between now and the end of the regular season – they'll play the 56. They'll play the full 56. And, you know, the two points I'll make there. First of all, how many times have you heard Phil, ah, we used to play four games and five nights in the playoffs. Uh, granted, the game is different. It's probably not as demanding on bodies, but, you know, players in the 70s, and they did this without the off-season training programs that the players nowadays go through. When um, I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is it is very taxing. Don't get it me is. wrong. I'm not I'm not trying to downplay that in any way, shape, or form. But ath athletics, sports teams, it's a science now, 
right? Like it's a science. They understand how to, you know, get the requisite sleep, to get the requisite time off, the recovery time, the ways to speed up that recovery time, the the post-game shakes and the nutrition and everything else that these players do to make sure that their bodies are in top shape. It's definitely going to have an effect on it. I don't know if it's going to have a long-term effect on it. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to hurt the quality of the product long-term. It might, we might not get the same intensity in the playoffs this year as we normally do. But then again, I thought that last year when he got to the bubble and boy, did the Carolina hurricanes change our minds really quick. Uh, two minutes into the game, the big hit that I think Brady shade delivered um, on Jesper Faust, um, I think really woke people up to understand how intense. I think once you get to the playoffs, I think players understand what they're being asked to do. So uh, it, it might have some impact on the quality of play, but I don't think it's going to be detrimental to the game in any way. Uh, from Stephanie, uh, I know we're down to the top four defensemen, but should there be concern about the number of shots on goal? at 40 and 41, which is the past two games, which are the only two games this year that teams have had 40 shots on goal against Tampa Bay, or will that sort itself out once Eric Chernak and Ryan McDonough return and they need to be more disciplined to stay out of the box. That is definitely the case in terms of discipline. They have to make sure they keep themselves out of the box. You can't, you can't be asked to kill three penalties in the final 10 minutes of the game against Carolina, where you're playing your eighth game in 13 nights and, and expect that you're going to be able to, you know, have success at it. It caught up to them in that situation. As far as being, I, I think once you get at least one of those guys back and you start to even out some of the ice time availability with some of these guys, I mean, look how well they played Tuesday. McDonough didn't play Tuesday against Dallas, but Chernak did. They held Dallas to 17 shots, just one shot in the second period. I think the last two games against Dallas and Carolina to end that trip are as much of a reflection as the schedule catching up to them as it is the absence of McDonough and Chernak. So I'm not overly concerned about the shot totals the last couple of games. I think they'll be brought back down to normal levels once at least one of those guys comes back. Yeah, I agree. And I think, to your point, stay out of the penalty box. That's one thing you can do when you're struggling a bit defensively and you're tired. But you can make a case that's why they're taking a bunch of penalties too. I think that that coincides with it, which is one of the reasons why the biggest reason why John Cooper elected not to practice during these last couple of days, getting ready for their game on Tuesday and decided just to rest. That speaks volumes to where he thinks the problems are with this team in general. It is fatigue. It is making poor mental decisions. They get a break for a couple of days. Let's see if they're back ready to go on Tuesday. Yep, and the last one, this is more of an observation, but we always going to get in questions from Bob and comments from Bob. Um, never realized how important Kevin Shattenkirk and Zach Bogosian were last season. Definitely do not have the experience depth as shown with Chernak and McDonough out. Andreas Borgman needs more time working this game. Concerned we haven't been holding the lead. Two-goal leads are hard to hold. It's not like it used to be pre-lockout days where if you had a one-goal lead, the odds of a team coming back and beating you were slim. Uh, the game has changed. I think the uh, it's opened up the speed, the skill, uh, the number of power plays that maybe are called, uh, despite the conversation we had earlier in the day, are actually more you know than they were pre-lockout. So I think that factors into it as well. So again, I'm not like I'm I'm I take notice of the fact that. You know, they haven't been able to hold two nothing leads in the second period of the past two games. Do I think it's a long term concern at this point? I do not. Uh, I think that this team is, is experienced enough and veteran enough to understand 
where things got away from them in those two games and how to correct them even without the practice time. Uh, I think John Cooper even alluded to that after the game against Carolina, that they understand what's going on and how to fix it. So I don't have any long-term concerns right now about the blown leads, but it is something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, I think last year we talked about it, the, the best depth, best back end, I think, in, in Lightning history. And Bogosian found himself in and out of the lineup even late in the playoffs. That's how good that back end was. Shattenkirk was a mainstay for Tampa Bay throughout uh, the whole year. And losing those guys, you were going to feel it. What made the less, what made the loss of those players less this year, I think, was the fact that Chernak has taken, I think, similar steps to what Sergachev took last year for this year. And I think he's been amazing. And, um, and it's one of the reasons you haven't felt the loss on the back end as much. Again, I want to still see what Borgman can do. Still young enough where I think there's a little bit of upside there. Struggled against Carolina, but who didn't? And I think their back end in the playoffs, it's going to be a little different this year than we saw last year. I think you are going to see them rely on their top four more than we saw last year. And sometimes, E, you just have to adjust with what you're given every year. And I think that's probably going to be the way the Lightning navigate through the playoffs this season. Yeah, you've already got a precursor of that. Because how many times this year have we seen Victor Hedman play with like four different guys on yep, his right no side? Doubt. And that's that's just what you're going to see in the postseason. So uh, especially when you have five guys that you can rely on, right? Because you got the three down the left and um, I the four. I, my math is really bad as usual. Because I, as some fans will point out, I don't know how much you can count on Jan Ruta to take on big minutes in the playoffs. Um, so yeah, you are going to rely on those top four quite a bit uh, once you get there, but Chicago wrote it to three championships in five years. So it's something that can be done. And this team has the talent to be able to get that done. All right. That's going to wrap up this edition of the podcast. Uh, I want to thank uh, Greg. Uh, great conversation as always, as usual. Thanks for the questions, everybody. They're great questions. Uh, love the interaction that we get to have with everybody. Uh, again, make sure you share, make sure you like, make sure you check out Greg weekdays from 12 to one on lightning power play with power lunch with Dave Michigan. Uh, check out the pregame, the postgame uh, as well. Does post games with Brian Engblom with Bobby, the chief Taylor, sometimes even solo Greg does that. He's so good at it. So make sure you check him out there. Uh, Greg until next week, my friend, have a good week. We'll, we'll get to see you at the rink this time. Checks in the mail. E for all those compliments. Appreciate it, buddy. <laughs> yes. This is a lot of fun. Always enjoy our, uh, our weekly catch ups. Keep those questions rolling. Because uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, I think, from here on out. But uh, great job, brother, and we'll talk to you on Tuesday. All right, everybody. Again, thanks for tuning in. This is the Lightning Insider Podcast. Uh, for Greg Linnelli, I am Eric Erlinson. So until next week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.